There's so much we don't know about this species, including how old they get and, you know, what they look like when they come out, when they're born. There have only been a very few, like a handful, instances of, of juvenile or baby basking sharks. My name is Alex McInturf. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow um, at Oregon State University's Big Fish Lab. So uh, I don't really know. I feel like I wear many hats. So figuring out one title to call me is, is hard. I would say I'm a science communicator. I am a marine ecologist. I'm also an animal behaviorist. So it depends on kind of what the context is and the questions I'm asking. But I feel like I kind of switch around in terms of what I'm interested in. Welcome to episode 21 of Below the Tide. I know it's been a little bit since my last episode, but I am back. I have a lot of amazing material that I am really excited to share with you. So if you have never listened to Below the Tide, welcome. My name is Liz, and what I do is I basically provide a space where you can learn about marine science in an easy-to-understand way directly from marine scientists. So... Marine scientists come on, we chat about their research, we chat about their work, we chat about the amazing stories that they have from their years in the field, and we break it down into easy-to-understand terms, and I put out visual resources for everybody on Twitter and Instagram. Those are at below the tide pod, and it's just a great way that you can kind of learn about marine science in a not too intimidating way. This week, we are starting a new episode with Alex McInturf about basking sharks. And if you've never heard about basking sharks or you've never seen what a basking shark looks like, definitely need to listen to this episode. You should also just Google what they are. Go check out my Instagram page. I have pictures on there because these creatures are actually just amazing. And Alex is contributing to this field by bringing us one step closer to learning so much more about these this species that we really don't know very much about. Anyways, grab a coffee, tune in, open up my Instagram page so you can see what a basking shark looks like because these creatures are just insane. Okay, grab your coffee now. Let's start with like the Big Fish Lab. What is the Big Fish Lab? Such a good question. So the Big Fish Lab uh, started actually during the pandemic. So it's a pretty new lab at Oregon State University's Hatfield Marine Science Center. So that's just where I am currently living. I'm on the central coast of Oregon. And this lab was started by Dr. Taylor Chapel. Um, he is a shark scientist, as am I. That's another hat that I wear. And so this lab was essentially set up to try to understand the understudied shark species in Oregon waters. You know, I talk to a lot of people here in Oregon since I moved up here and I, I hear a lot, oh, we have sharks, oh, what kind of sharks? And some people are really aware of that and some people are not, but regardless of whether you know about them, uh, we often see that there is very little generally in terms of data or information on their movement patterns or behaviors or even what they're eating in these waters. So I'm part of the Big Fish Lab and our goal is to try to reveal some of the shark secrets that are here on the Oregon coast. Cool, and let's talk about the sharks that you study. Sure, so I study uh, two different kinds of sharks primarily, although I've dabbled in a few other ones. 
And I've been super fortunate to be able to work on a variety of different field projects as part of the BFL, the Big Fish Lab. Right now, my primary focus is on salmon sharks. So these are basically, I call them fun-sized great white sharks. They're closely related to white sharks. They share a lot of the same features. They're just a little bit smaller. And by smaller, I mean like six to eight feet. So still kind of big, uh, but they do definitely look slightly more distinct uh, than a great white. And we do see a lot of them here in Oregon. In fact, right now at this time of year, we are getting a lot of juveniles stranding um, on the beaches here. So we're collecting some of those uh, stranded individuals to try to figure out a lot of different information from their tissues and their stomachs, for example. And that's primarily my project. So I'm trying to figure out what are they eating? Where do they go? And in particular, how often do they overlap with commercially valuable fish species like salmon? So that's one project. The other project is my basking shark project. I am co-coordinator of the Irish Basking Shark Group. And uh, I have spent a lot of time both in Ireland and in California studying the shark populations in these two different ocean basins, the North Atlantic and the North Pacific. And right now I'm interested in modeling their movement patterns and their distribution in both of these places. In fact, one of my PhD chapters came out earlier this year, and we're really interested in seeing how do basking shark, how does how does their presence vary according to stuff like temperature or whether their food is there, and how might that be affected in terms of climate change moving forward. So those are kind of all the projects I have going on. There are a few other ones that I won't even talk about now, but salmon, rockfish, there's, there's a lot happening in the big fish lab, and I'm lucky to be a part of a lot of it. Wow, so cool. And a basking shark, I feel like that's something that not very many people know about or they've ever really seen. Do you want to kind of give an explanation of what they look like, what their, what their you know, personalities are like? Oh, yes. Basking sharks are my favorite shark species. I do love salmon sharks. I think they're very cool. But basking sharks are the world's second largest fish. And so they're one of three filter feeding shark species in addition to the whale shark and the mega mouth, and they look like underwater Cessnas, like underwater old school airplanes. When they're swimming at the surface, which is where they usually feed, because that's where there's a predictable layer of plankton, they will, you can see them very easily. Their fins come out of the water. That's actually how they got their name, Basking Shark. And they, they really have no fear. They're about 20 to 30 feet long, which is really big. And uh, they are still apex predators. So by that, I mean they're at the top of a food chain, but that food chain is very small. It's phytoplankton, zooplankton, and then basking shark. And uh, they look like the dopiest fish in all of the ocean is another, is another way of putting it. So they just swim around with their mouths agape all the time. And uh, they're very cool. They're very cool animals. And I highly recommend folks Google them if you have the opportunity. Yeah, totally. And how big are they 20 to 30 feet wow yeah i with all of my episodes i put out like visual um, resources as well and because i think that sometimes we talk about things in the episode and it's so hard to imagine them and it's one of those things where you're like i'm gonna google it later but the basking sharks are definitely my favorite shark out here um so they're present like here in the Pacific Northwest, and then as well off of Ireland? Yes, and what we're actually finding in this very recent result, like as of last week, 
uh, is that the numbers have seemed to change in these two ocean basins over time. Basking sharks are what we call cosmopolitan animals. And that just means that they're capable of traveling worldwide. Like I said, they're very big. They can move pretty far for relatively little effort. And so we do know, based on work done by the Irish Basking Shark Group and other researchers affiliated with that sort of network of volunteers and researchers, that basking sharks can travel across the entire Atlantic Ocean. We haven't seen sort of a parallel in the Pacific yet, but that's because there's been very few tagging studies happening in this part of the world so far. But we have been able to collect information on sightings. Like I said, basking sharks tend to feed at the surface. So you can actually report your sightings. In Ireland, people report them to the Irish basking shark group. In California, people would report them to NOAA. In Canada, I think they report them to DFO. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have these big sightings data sets that have lasted several decades. So for my PhD research, what we found is that uh, the number of sightings in the Pacific in the area we were studying, so basically the California coast, the number of sightings has decreased dramatically over time. And similarly, researchers up in Canada have said something like that as well. Up there, the numbers seem to be declining. So the general consensus here in the Pacific is that basking shark populations are declining here. Conversely, in Ireland, after looking at the same time period of data, so roughly from 1960 to the present, the numbers have increased over there, at least in terms of the sightings that have been recorded, and we aren't sure why. But I do know that we see basking sharks much more regularly in Ireland than we do in California. And like I said, because they can travel so widely, when we tend to study them, it's at certain times of year when they form what we call seasonal hotspots. So these are just kind of gathering areas along the coastline where the basking sharks show up. In Ireland, it's during the summer. In California, it's currently during the summer, although that seasonality seems to have changed over time. And so what we'll do is we'll ask people during the summer to keep a particular eye out for a big fin and a big shape in the water that looks like a cross between a white shark and a sea serpent. Um, and please report those numbers to us. And we can start to see what are the trends? When are the sharks showing up? Do they show up at different times of the year? Does that depend on whether it was a warm year or a cold year? You know, what's affecting their presence in certain hotspot locations? So that's actually a project I'm actively working on as we speak, trying to compare what we saw in California to what we're seeing in places like Ireland. That's so cool. And how do you differentiate like sightings being reported? How do you know that you know, that it's kind of accurately representing the population, quote unquote, when you're depending on people to report their sightings. You don't. And that, I think, is the biggest caveat of using something like sightings data for these models. Basking sharks, unfortunately, can be quite elusive and tagging them to try to get a better idea of their population numbers is really hard. Oftentimes they're bigger than your boat. Uh, so the way that we would tag them is essentially by approaching the shark very carefully uh, from a small boat in the water that's pretty low so that we can pole dart them from the boat. So it looks like a harpoon, it's not a harpoon. And essentially we just stick um, a small little dart that just goes right underneath the skin in the back of the shark uh, with an ID number on it. And that's usually a good way to see. You can also put other tags on them, like satellite tags, which transmit their location every time they're at the surface. 
Uh, we could also put acoustic tags on them. So those send out underwater signals that can be detected by what we call receivers moored on the seafloor. So there's a lot of different types of technology we could use to better understand basking sharks or any sharks really, because they spend so much time um, out of the human eye, right? But unfortunately for basking sharks, uh, long-term tagging programs haven't really existed necessarily. So when we're looking at these larger timescales back to the 1960s, we really only have information on sightings, but we also of course have to interpret our results accordingly, right? We can't make big sweeping statements about the population necessarily, but we can say based on these decline in sightings, at least in California and Canada, for example, it's likely that the population is not doing super well. Yeah, and why would you hypothesize that they're not doing so well? Unfortunately, basking sharks have, I think it's actually a really morbidly cool history. They have been historically targeted kind of worldwide in various regions for a lot of different resources. So their liver oil in particular was valuable. In Ireland, there was a huge fishery for them along the Western coast, uh, particularly in the middle of the 20th century you know, or before electricity this liver oil was really valuable in providing lighting to like streets. For example, like the streets of Belfast were allegedly lit by basking shark liver oil, at least to some degree. And of course their fins are still super valuable as well. They can fetch quite a large price on the in the shark fin market. And so these fisheries tended to pop up because the sharks would show up in these big numbers in these hotspots in these gathering areas. Uh, they were pretty easily targeted by these local fisheries. There were some in Morro Bay and Monterey. Like I said, there was one along the west coast of Ireland. In Canada, sharks used to be so abundant as to be considered pest species because they would become entangled in the fishing nets. Mm -hmm. And so from the 1940s to 1970, um, the Canadian government actually enacted a culling or eradication program for them. And they were systematically basically killed because they were uh, really interfering with the salmon fishery. So we think, at least we hypothesize in my PhD paper, that this decline in the Pacific was probably caused by these localized fisheries. But what's weird is that the world's largest fishery was in Ireland, and we aren't seeing those trends over there. So there remains much to be explored, and I think a key to figuring that out would be trying to determine where else basking sharks might be encountering sources of mortality or where they are being fished throughout the rest of the Pacific, because we really know very little about the Pacific story. And certainly once they leave the, the jurisdiction of countries like the US or Canada, we don't really have control over their protection or any say in the level of fishing that can happen for them. And there really aren't fisheries for them anymore, but that is to say, there's a huge chunk of the story missing, probably happening in the middle of the Pacific or on the other side. Yeah, and a basking shark fishery, what would that kind of entail? It depends. There are, there were a variety of techniques that kind of evolved over time. For, for the fisheries in Ireland, for example, which is probably the most well-documented, so I can speak the most to mm -hmm. that, uh, there were certain bays where the sharks could come into. And you could actually predict the trajectory of the sharks because you can see them. You can see them filter feeding at the surface and kind of where they're going to leave the bay. And right. you could stretch a massive net across the mouth of the bay. Um, and you could capture them in a net. 
the Norwegians also kind of came down and fished in that general area historically, and they might use a harpoon. So very similar to the whaling industry, actually. So those were kind of the two major methods of, of fishing for them. But yeah. you can imagine, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, you didn't have these massive commercial vessels that could just go out and take down a basking shark. You were in, in Ireland, they had these small wooden boats, essentially. Again, the basking sharks were way bigger than the boats. And it was a ton of effort to get these huge animals then back to shore where you could process them. Can you talk a little bit about what their lifestyle looks like, like how big they get to and how small they start and then feeding and such. What do they eat? When I talk about basking sharks, my answer to a lot of things is I don't know because there's so much we don't know about this species, including how old they get and you know what they look like when they come out, when they're born. There have only been a very few, like a handful instances of, of juvenile or baby basking sharks. And those sharks are still pretty big. So we're talking five or six feet long. And Whoa. that makes sense given that they can grow to such big lengths, right? But we do know a little bit about sexual maturity. So it's thought that, you know, you're talking early teens, early to mid teens for sexual maturity for males and females. And females do tend to be slightly larger than males and mature slightly later. But we don't know how long they live. There are estimates that it might be 60 to 80 years, but that's not really been tested because how do you test that in right. a basking shark? And there can't even really be anything in terms of a stock assessment. So when I'm talking about stock assessments, these are typically tools used by managers or NOAA or governmental organizations to basically estimate the status of the population or using a lot of different modeling techniques. But in order to do that, you need basic information on how many, um, how much young are born for a given individual and how long they might live and what the sources of mortality might be. And all, all of this information continues to be speculative for basking sharks. So there's a lot that we don't know. In fact, probably the most that we know about them is about their feeding behavior because that's when people tend to see them the most is when they're eating. Now, basking sharks, this is going to get a little bit jargony, so I'm going to try to define the jargon <laughs> as much as I can. They are, like I said, one of three filter feeding shark species. And they're very similar to like baleen whales or whales that also eat plankton or krill. And their feeding mechanisms tend to be pretty similar. This filter feeding, right? Swimming with your mouth open, engulfing big amounts of plankton, and then swallowing it, right? But basking sharks are unique. They're what we call, get ready for it, obligate ram filter feeders, which I love to tell people because no one has any idea what that means. What that means though, is that they can't suction feed, so they can't do what whale sharks do and they can't do what whales do. Whales will like lunge at big patches of plankton and whale sharks will kind of like sip them into their mouths almost. Right. Basking sharks can't do that. So they are stuck with basically just swimming around with their mouths open all the time, which I think is so wild because it's also really energetically inefficient, right? Imagine that you are just running or swimming all the time with a parachute tied to your back or maybe in front of you, I don't know. But that's essentially what's happening there. Every time they open their mouths, it's increasing the drag 
on the body. So part of the work I'm doing right now also in collaboration with folks at Stanford and Trinity College in Dublin is trying to figure out why did they evolve to feed in such a weird way, right? Surely there's a better, more efficient way to feed than just swimming around with your mouth open all the time. But we don't know how they managed to evolve this and whether there's ways that they can compensate for it. Like maybe do they swim down when they're, or slow down when they're doing it? Maybe they increase their tail beats so that they can move more quickly through a prey patch. We just don't know. So the mechanics of feeding are super wild something we're still trying to figure out. Um, and that's hopefully going to be ongoing research as well. Whoa. So they can close their mouths, but they yes. swim with their mouths open when they're looking to eat. Yes. Yeah. And their mouths are massive. Like I, I have been in the water with basking sharks and I should say we could talk about this later, but the Irish basking shark group is currently advocating for basking shark protection in Ireland because they're not protected over there yet. Uh, but we do not advocate for people getting in the water and swimming around them all the time because that interrupts their feeding behavior, right? But they do approach you. So if we are in the water, they will just swim straight up to you, which is very daunting because they're huge and they look bigger underwater. So when I've been in the water with them, you're really just staying still. They approach boats pretty frequently. And in fact, ship strikes are where the boat hits the animal. That's a pretty common hazard, at least in Ireland, where we still see a lot of sharks. So we do warn boat operators to be pretty careful at certain times of year. But the sharks will just swim right up to you while they are filter feeding and you look at their mouths and you think, I could be in there pretty easily. Which is well, just, yeah, so the- Yeah, I mean, sorry, no, I was gonna say just for their size, I can only imagine how large their mouth is because they just have to eat so much. Yeah, exactly. Their throats are pretty small, so you're probably not going to be swallowed by one, but they okay. will get really close to you. <laughs> and in fact, uh, people will warn you about the tail. The tail is uh, very powerful and the animal is so long that if they're ever swimming by you, either in a boat or if you happen to be in the water, uh, the tail is a hazard also. It could easily hit you. Whoa. How big is their tail? It's probably, I would say I'm 5'8". It's probably just smaller than me. So like maybe two meters, maybe two, no, a meter and a half. Yeah. That's so. still insane. It's a lot. And, and they are, like I said, they are fearless. I mean, which makes sense, right? They don't have any natural predators necessarily. So they have no reason not to be. But uh, I, I was really kind of shocked by just how undeterred they were, even by the presence of the boats when I'm doing field work with them. Thanks again for tuning in to Below the Tide. Again, my name is Liz, and you can follow along on social media at Below the Tide Pod. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. On there, you'll find all the resources for this episode, and you'll also get updates on when the next episodes come out. You can also check out all of the previous episodes that we have done on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. See you next week.